George Will thinks we need to restore Midwestern values. I talk about this in episode 757 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests if you want to hear something. I do like to see what you want to hear. Also, if you want some great stuff, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a great way to support the show, and you advertise the show at the same time. Also, go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Another great way to support the show if you purchase a class there. I do teach there, along with, of course, McClanahan Academy. So, lots of great ways to support the show financially. And I do appreciate all of your moral support as well. And that's where it comes into rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic. And I mentioned at the top of the program, it's George Will. Now, George Will is a neocon's neocon. And he's a great writer. I mean, look, you, you can't deny the fact that Will has the ability to write very good op-eds. It's a skill. It's something that people really have to work on. There are not many people that can do it and do it well, but George Will is one of those people. Uh, but the problem is most of his writing is a thinly veiled regurgitation of the righteous cause myth or the Lincoln myth. And George Will had penned a piece at the Washington Post in December, December 30th, in fact, where he argued that what we need to do is restore Midwestern values in America. That's what's going to save America, Midwestern values. Now, let me say this. There's a lot of people listening to the show in the Midwest. There's a lot of great people in the Midwest. The Midwest is a, is a fantastic place. There's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nice place in America. And there's a lot of, as I said, a lot of great conservative people out there. But what Will calls Midwestern values is simply a distorted version of New England Puritanism. That's important to note. You see, when you understand the cultural origins of America and you understand where we got to where we are through culture and migratory patterns, you understand that what George Will is really doing here is simply saying we need to make New America New England again. Because he doesn't really pursue Midwestern values that would be real Midwestern values. And a lot of those real Midwestern values were found originally in Southerners who settled in this area. Now, I did a, a podcast not long ago on a piece that was complaining about the fact that a lot of people in the Midwest are now flying Confederate flags and thinking about Confederate heroes and these other things. Why? Because what these people really are are Jeffersonians. They're not New England Federalists. They're not New England Imperialists who had settled there. What a lot of these people believe is the Jeffersonian vision of America of decentralization. And I think Will gets a couple of things right here. Fierce independence. The people in the Midwest were independent. But we have to understand that the Midwest was actually born out of the South. It was born out of Virginia. And Virginia is what gave it its earliest character, not New England that he seems to celebrate so much with some of the dopes he lists in this little piece. So if you 
I mean, if you dig down into this, if you cut away all the the surface material here and get beyond what George Will is saying and what he's advocating, you really find that George Will simply doesn't understand American history very well. In fact, years ago, George Will went to the University of South Carolina to interview uh, Clyde Wilson, and um, it was about DiLorenzo's book and Lincoln. And Will had this kind of haughtiness, uh, Clyde said, that, um, you know, this, this uh, uh, disposition to believe that he was superior to everyone else. And that, of course, comes through in his writing. He's not a real, I mean, he doesn't really believe in a lot of the things he writes. And, and that's, that's also, you know, his, uh, his uh, inauthenticity that he has when it comes to uh, Midwestern values. It's like when you see um, you know, people like Ben Shapiro walking around with a cowboy hat on. It's just stupid. It's, it's really just stupid. So I want to talk about this piece, and I'm going to go through and break apart some things and, and comment on some things that he says in it. Because, again, this is another example of how the Lincoln myth is destructive to American conservatism, and it's destructive to American society in many ways. Because it, it's a myth in not the original sense of the term where you have these, the greatness of people. It's a myth in that it's fabricated. There's nothing real about it. It's a fake story. So we have to understand that about you know Will's perception of the Midwest or how at least he portrays the Midwest. It's a again, it's a distortion of the real Midwest. Now, let me talk about. Well, let me just read the story and then I'll then I'll say some of the things about this. So the title is "An Unsettled Times: Look to Midwestern Values." Now, first of all, there's a correction at the top of the page. Correction, an earlier version of this column incorrectly stated Missouri never had slavery. This version has been updated. So George Will, in the original version, actually listed Missouri as a non-slaveholding state, which is fascinating that maybe he didn't know that. I don't know. But it's really interesting. So the piece begins, At last the Midwest is receiving recognition as the best portion of the nation. America's regional characteristics are remarkably durable, a diversity resistant to dissolution by the mobility of restless Americans or by cultural homogenization driven by mass media. Now, I found that line to be absolutely hilarious. What we have in America today is the cultural homogenization driven by the Midwest. In fact, um, people try to sound like they're from the Midwest. Now, not Wisconsin or Minnesota, but more like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois. That's where they try to sound like they're from. In fact, you know, for, for years, newscasters wanted to sound like they were from uh, you know, some place in Indiana, some middle part of the country. It was devoid, supposedly, of an accent. It wasn't New England. It wasn't the South. It wasn't uh, California or something else. But it was a general, generic American accent. So the Midwest is actually the driving factor in cultural homogenization in America. What he's saying is that somehow the Midwest has resisted this. But in reality, the Midwest has driven it. And even the, the stuff that he argues here about how important the Midwest is, how important this section of the United States is when it comes to American culture, 
is essentially a driving factor in American cultural homogenization. Now, again, I talked about this piece that was published not long ago where there was a you know, complaint about how the South was making the Midwest more like the South. And people sounded more like they were from the South in the Midwest than from the Midwest. But I had a, an English teacher as a, in, in junior high school who was from Alabama, but you never would have known it because she, she hit her accent. And she did that because she thought that she wouldn't get a job where she was working at the time because the accent would have been considered to be stupid. So where is the homogenization here? It's coming out of the Midwest. We don't hear the accents anymore in Congress that we used to hear, where people sound like they're from different regions of America. The only place that's, that's palatable is in New England, or if you have a non-Anglo-American uh, accent, right? If you are uh, from somewhere in Latin America or somewhere else in the world and you come into the United States, you're allowed to maintain your accent because it's not uh, what you would consider to be a traditional North American accent. You're allowed to keep it then. But otherwise, you got to get rid of it unless you're from the Midwest and that, or, again, New England. But those are the only palatable accents anymore. Southerners, you can't have that accent. That would be uh, considered to be stupid. So that one's gone. So I find this, this statement that somehow the Midwest has um, resisted cultural homogenization to be absolutely hilarious because they are the driving factor in it, 100%. So he says, This especially pleases Midwest chauvinists who have to contend with curdled despisers from A2 Brute, the Midwest. So then he says, Thanks to the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, the nation's finest act of statecraft prior to the Constitution, the region that will become the Midwest 12 states, all west of the Alleghenies and north of the Ohio River, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kansas, Nebraska, and the Dakotas, never, with the exception of Missouri, had slavery. Now, let me pause there for a second. Because the Northwest Ordinance was essentially, well, I, I should say this, the Land Ordinance of 1784 was conceptualized by Thomas Jefferson, and the entire Northwest Territory was gifted to the United States by Virginia. And the man who settled it, or at least conquered it, for the United States was a Southerner, George Rogers Clark. And so you had Virginia dominating this early vision of the Midwest. It was Jeffersonian. It wasn't New England, as George Will's going to try to portray later on the piece. It was definitively Virginian in character. Uh, you had a lot of the important individuals in you know, early Western history in America participating in the Midwest. And at least uh, this part of the war, uh, this, this frontier battle for the Midwest. But George Rogers Clark was one of the most important Americans uh, for much of early American history. And of course, his, his brother, uh, William Clark, would be part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. But also, you know, when you look at how important George Rogers Clark was, and then, of course, William Clark, and you, know, you had people like George Mason and Patrick Henry, who really loved George Rogers Clark, uh, we forget all of that because we have this, again, Lincolnian myth of the Midwest, as Will will say he'll double down on in the very next sentence of the paragraph. <laughs> 
And I'll talk about that too. He says, uh, he says um, instead, these states had the crackling entrepreneurial energy that Alexis de Tocqueville floating down the Ohio and Jacksonian America saw to his right in Ohio, but not to his left in slaveholding Kentucky. Now, let's pause there again for a second. First of all, uh, Ohio actually had laws on the books that did not allow blacks to live within that state. Same thing with Illinois. And those laws in Illinois were actually passed uh, in the later antebellum period. And uh, John Logan, who would later become one of the most important and celebrated Union generals, uh, was responsible for those laws. John Logan wanted to be a Confederate when he was rejected from that, or at least when Southern Illinois didn't join the Confederacy, he became a Union proponent, and later on wrote a whole bunch of disparaging stuff about the Confederacy, uh, ignoring his own complicity, at least if he's you know ripping apart the Confederacy for being quote-unquote racist, ignoring his own complicity in the process by actually advocating for exclusionary laws in Illinois against black Americans. We know that these areas were not necessarily receptive to black Americans, that they were, in, in essence, hostile, in actuality hostile, to black Americans living there. We know that Western anti-slavery sentiment was driven more by race than anything else. We also know, if you look at various studies of slavery, that slavery was not an economic uh, uh, retardant on American entrepreneurship. It wasn't a capitalist enterprise, but certainly it made a lot of money for people. And um, it wasn't, slaves were not unproductive. Slaves were actually very productive laborers. And they did, I mean, heck, they, they funded American, uh, American manufacturing and American shipping with cotton and other catch crops. I mean, so... Uh, the system was not economically backward, as some have argued. I think that's a, an effort to say, well, the system was backward, it would have gone away. I don't think it would have. I mean, I think slavery would have existed long beyond the 1860s in America because of its success financially. When you look at some of the homes built in the 1850s in places like Louisiana and Mississippi, um, but particularly in the areas where you had sugar production, these are some of the finest homes built in American history particularly at the time, they had technological advancements that would have rivaled just about anywhere else in the world. And that was all driven by sugar money. So there was a lot going on here economically. As uh, William Fogel has pointed out in a book uh, he wrote, he was, of course, one of the two authors of Time on the Cross, but uh, he wrote a, a book, The Slavery Debates. And he even said this in Time on the Cross. He said, look, we can't we can't condemn slavery as a backward institution economically. We have to condemn it other ways. And uh, because the evidence doesn't support any of these charges against it, that it was going to essentially fall apart or become backwards or eventually disappear, that wasn't going to happen. It had to be condemned some other way. And that would be, most importantly, in the realm of power and what that actually did to both master and slave um, in, in the time period. So... That's the avenue that people took, or that, that historians have figured out with slavery. George Will is regurgitating something that is uh, simply not based on the record here. Uh, the South wasn't backwards. The South wasn't economically stagnant. The South was actually very vibrant economically, and in terms of 
per capita income, and even non-slave owning per capita income, the South rivaled anywhere else in the United States. Southern farms that were not slaveholding farms were just as productive as they were in the North. So this reference to de Tocqueville, of course, if you're an establishment conservative, you have to reference to Tocqueville. I mean, it's something that Newt Gingrich made popular in the 1990s. Let's reference to Tocqueville. You have to talk about de Tocqueville. But um, de Tocqueville also said that, you know, in the South, you had much easier race relations than you had in, in the Midwest or in the North. Now, the next paragraph is really interesting. Um, next two paragraphs, because it relies on Frederick Jackson Turner. And I'll talk about that in a second. But he says, quote, in the good country, history of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900, John K. Luack, editor of the Middle West Review, I'm sorry, recalls that historian Frederick Jackson Turner, born in Wisconsin in 1861, said, quote, it is in the Middle West that society is formed on lines least like Europe, with fewer hierarchies and less deference. Kasuth County, Iowa is named after a Hungarian revolutionary. Luak, professor of history and political science at the University of South Dakota, notes that even Wisconsin-born Frank Lloyd, Lloyd Wright's prairie style was a Midwestern declaration of architectural independence. So, Frederick Jackson Turner, of course, in his frontier thesis, wrote and argued that the Midwest democratized America because in the Midwest you lost all of the trappings of European hierarchy. That it was somehow this region that created the, the core of what it meant to be an American Democrat. Now what's fascinating about that is you have people like uh, James Fenimore Cooper who wrote a book in the 1830s entitled The American Democrat where I mean, Cooper is a man of the elite and his vision of democracy is... Um, I mean, quite fascinating in contrast to what Frederick Jackson Turner is arguing. Uh, he would, of course, say that democracy was the antithesis in some ways, or at least the way it was being framed. And, and number one, Cooper was a Democrat. I mean, he was a Jacksonian. But the way it was being framed was alien to real American democracy and I mean, Cooper considered himself a firm American Democrat from the western part of New York, not from the Midwest. And what about Southerners who would fit, you would say they were Jacksonian Democrats? And so you have all of this stuff that, that Turner has said, you know, it's been contested quite a bit. Turner is not necessarily, has not necessarily sold the entire profession or all of Americans on this frontier thesis of American history. But that's what he's talking about. And of course, you have you know Frank Lloyd Wright with a type of Midwestern architecture that frankly is pretty bad. Um, it's it's not very aesthetically pleasing. So perhaps I mean they are right about some things. Democracy is pretty awful. It's the lowest common denominator. It's it's not nice to look at. It's not nice. It's it's it has a lot of problems to it. I talked about this uh, you know throughout the last couple of weeks the problems of democracy. Uh, I talked about it yesterday, in fact, on the podcast on secession. So, uh, you know, is this a good thing? Is the Midwest driving democracy a good thing? Do we really want Midwestern-style democracy? Which, if how Will defines it in a little bit later in the piece, would be disastrous, or it was disastrous for the Constitution. 
So he says, the 19th century Midwest was, Luak argues, the most advanced democratic society the world has yet seen. It was inhabited by people born in the Young Republic, mostly farmers, cultivating land so bountiful that the saying was, if you planted a crowbar, nails would sprout overnight. Aspiring adults inspired children mostly immune to modernity's coercive cynicism, the kind that yields indifference and decay. Now, was this not going on in other parts of the United States as well? I mean, the most fertile part, perhaps, in the United States was actually in the South, in what's called the Black Belt region of the, United, of, of the South, right? Was that not very fertile land? Were they not growing massive amounts of cash crops? And, by the way, large amounts of fruits and vegetables and grains and other things? Of course they were. Of course they were. Uh, so to say that these independent farmers were driving America is to ignore the entire other section of America that was actually dominated by independent farmers. And what we find in the Midwest are people that weren't really that independent because what they wanted were federally funded internal improvements so they could get their crops to market. Whereas in the South, there was a lot of resistance to that. Those people were more independent than anyone in the Midwest. Now, you could say that there certainly was a type of camaraderie among these farmers. In fact, John C. Calhoun wanted to capitalize on that. He wanted to ensure that there was an alliance between the West and the South. They were natural allies, after all. They're all farmers. And New Englanders saw this as a problem, which is why they started advocating New England secession as early as 1794. But particularly after the Louisiana Purchase and the addition of much more farmland to American society, we wanted to ensure, New Englanders wanted to ensure that this alliance between the West and the South would forever be broken. Well, how do you do that? Well, you use the issue of slavery because Midwesterners were essentially hostile to the extension of slavery into those states. They were also hostile to the extension of black Americans into those states. And so you had this certainly natural alliance, agrarian alliance, which you would see in the populist movement between the West and the, and the Midwest or the Midwest and the South, I should say. But Southerners were also resisting modernity. They were also resisting indifference and decay. In fact, that's the basis of the Jeffersonian Southern tradition. You could say Southerners, more than anything else, if you read Eugene Genovese, were very concerned about modernity and what it was doing to the South. Now, they were modern in that they thought that what they were doing was going to bring about a type, a renaissance of labor and other things, particularly those that were in the South that were pro-slavery ideologues. They thought that this would, would change the way we thought about labor in America. This is, if you, if you want to read a good book about this, good Eugene Genovese, The Slaveholder's Dilemma, where he gets into this dichotomy. You have Southerners who consider themselves to be progressive, yet they were resisting the worst effects of modernity. And if you look at the seminal book in America, in the 20th century, on the resistance to modernity, it doesn't come out of the Midwest. It comes out of the South. And that would be, I'll take my stand by 12 Southerners. Because you see, modernity came to the Midwest in the 20th century. And it certainly took hold in the industrial Midwest. Whereas it didn't in the South. The South hung on to this, what George Will is praising here, longer than any other part of the United States. So what we really need is not a rekindling of Midwestern values, but Jeffersonian values, which found their strongest supporters, not in the Midwest, but in the South. 
because you did have a lot of people moving to the Midwest, ultimately from New England, who didn't believe in these Southern values or Jeffersonian values or what Will is calling Midwestern values. He says, 19th century Americans were formed by 122 million copies of McGuffey readers by William McGuffey, who served at three Ohio colleges. Such was the Midwest book culture. More Carnegie libraries were built in the Midwest than in any other region. Mark Twain, William Dean Howells, and Theodore Dreiser, born in Missouri, Ohio, and Indiana, respectively, were products of that culture. Now, this is funny because Mark Twain is often considered a Southern writer, but yet he's critical of the South. He's not a Midwestern writer. He's a Southwestern writer. He's a Southwestern writer. And he's saying that the Midwest was more literate than anywhere else. Well, that's also fascinating because there are more college-educated Southerners than any other section in the antebellum period. The South was impoverished by the war. If Had that not happened, the South would have continued down the path of sectional dominance. And there is, a, I've mentioned it before, a great book, on uh, Southern political dominance, the natural superiority of Southern politicians, uh, because Southerners produced better statesmen and statescraft than any other part of the United States. What we need is the Renaissance of Virginia, real Virginia, old Virginia, not the Midwest. Even though, as I said, I'm not disparaging the Midwest. There's a lot of great people in the Midwest, and I, and I have a lot of listeners from there. But the core of what makes that Midwest is not New England, as he's saying, but the South. As was Willa Cather, who came in a, of age in Nebraska. When James Whitcomb Riley died in 1916, 35,000 Hoosiers viewed his casket. But the Civil War, there were, no, there were more than 100 Midwest colleges. Ohio had 20, Massachusetts only four. Now, why is this? Why did the Midwest have so many colleges? Well, these were land-grant colleges set aside because of the provisions of the Northwest Ordinance, where you had to have a certain section set aside for education. These were land-grant colleges. And uh, they were basically founded by the state. So in Massachusetts, while they only had four colleges, they were dominant colleges. People were going there from all over the world to study these were Ivy League schools, and Southerners were sending their, their children there. So were you know, Northerners, Western, everybody was trying to send their students to the Ivy League schools in New England. I mean, look, John C. Calhoun was a Yale man. I mean, th th that, that part of the world, New England, did dominate education. But you also had some pretty strong institutions developing in the South, too. Places like University of Virginia, University of North Carolina, University of South Carolina, these were really strong universities and had some great academic uh, minds there in the, in the antebellum period. Some Midwest writers have disdained the region that nourished them. Ernest Hemingway remembered his native Oak Park, Illinois, for broad lawns and narrow minds. Ohioan Sherwood Anderson, Winesburg, Ohio, he at first intended to title it the Book of Grotesque, depicted small-town Midwesterners as lonely, stultified hypocrites. The babbitry, meaning banal materialism, came from the title of a 1922 novel by Minnesotan Sinclair Lewis. His name was George F. Babbitt. He was 46 years old now in April 1920, and he made nothing in particular, neither butter nor shoes nor poetry, but he was nimble in the calling of selling houses for more than people could afford to pay. 
So again, people uh, disparaging the Midwest, Hemingway and others, you know who didn't do this? You know what section of writers did not do this? Southerners. Southerners who were very positive about their section and their people. Now, they would have villains in their own section. But more than anything else, they were positive about who their people were. That says a lot about the two sections. So you can say that Midwesterners didn't like their section. Why? Because there's perhaps some things not to like about it. Perhaps the things that George Will is celebrating here were not that great. Or maybe they were a type of Yankeeism implanted into the Midwest. Banal materialism. Where does that come from? New England. The New England Yankee. Why would someone like um, Washington Irving from New York write so disparagingly about New Englanders in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is what Ichabod Crane is? Why would he do that? Because everyone recognized this peculiar type of American as being dangerous. And these are the people that ultimately settled in the Midwest, particularly by the 20th century, who were making its character ugly. What Hemingway and others were pointing out, they were coming from, in some ways, a very Jeffersonian view of these things, meaning more Southern than Midwestern. They were pointing out some of the deficiencies of this Midwestern character that was more Yankee-driven. But, but, it's, but Will would celebrate that Yankee vision more than anything else. He says these writers were part of the Revolt from the Village, so named in 1921 by a Columbia University professor, Carl Van Doren, from a farm near Hope, Illinois. Today, village attributes, including neighborless, uh, neighborliness, public school schools that teach rather than preach, and vibrant civic cultures, look especially attractive when compared with urban dystopias from Baltimore to San Francisco. I mean, I agree with that, but that's not the Midwest that brought that. It's the South. It's the Southern character of these things, not New England, which was distorting the Midwest. You see, what, what George Will is not really realizing here is what he's advocating is actually something that's alien to this Lincolnian concept of America that he so cherishes. And the myth, the myth of Midwestern blandness cannot account for Eugene Debs of Indiana and Malcolm X from Omaha, Nebraska and Lansing, Michigan. <laughs> Why would, why would George Will champion Eugene Debs the Socialist? Why would he do that? Is there not somebody else he could have picked out? And where did Malcolm X, I mean, he was from Nebraska and Michigan, but where were his people originally from? Well, the South. There were no black people in Nebraska and Michigan early on. They came from the South. So the culture that produced Malcolm X... The communities that produced him were southern communities, by origin. Black southern communities. But that's somehow Midwestern, you see. No, it's southern. John Brown. Now, here's the guy that we really want to be uh, advocating here. John Brown, the homicidal maniac, grew up near Akron, Ohio. Well, I mean, that's not really a, a ringing endorsement of Akron, Ohio. John Brown was a loser and, again, a homicidal maniac. He, he, was, he was a psychopath 
There's nothing else to say about John Brown other than that. He was an opportunist. If, I mean, look, read Robert Penn Warren's book on, uh, on uh, John Brown, and uh, you're going to have a dramatically different uh, view of John Brown. We shouldn't be championing John Brown in America at all. At all. There should be nobody that celebrates John Brown. I know that people, well, but he, he was fighting to end slavery. He was also a murderer who killed black people in the name of ending slavery. So nobody should celebrate John Brown. Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin was based on her years in Cincinnati on the banks of the river whose, over whose ice flows Stowe's fictional Eliza fled. Now, this is funny because basically Will admits that Harriet Beecher Stowe did not base her book on experiences in the South, but in uh, Ohio. So she really didn't have firsthand experience of the South. She spent some time in Kentucky, a very brief amount of time. But she's writing it as a New Englander in the Midwest. He's championing a New Englander writing in the Midwest, bringing New England values to the Midwest. This is not Midwestern values. George Will is confused. He's confused. This is all you can say about that. In the Civil War, more than half the Union troops came from the Midwest, one quarter of the nation's population, as of the Norse commander-in-chief, most of his cabinet, and his two most important generals. Now, I thought uh, U.S. Uh, Grant and, and Sherman, both born in Ohio. Now, wait a second here. I thought people like to say Lincoln was actually from Kentucky, which would not be the Midwest, unless you consider Henry Clay to be a Midwesterner, I and mean, we've done that for years, but but Will was very disparaging about Kentucky, and then, of course, the Lincolns being shiftless settled all out, and then eventually settled up and ended up in Illinois and settled there. But this isn't a ringing endorsement of the Midwest either, because the war destroyed the original Constitution. Grant and Sherman, Grant had the most uh, corrupt administration in the history of the United States, and Sherman was a war criminal. So this is what we want. We want to champion the destruction of the Constitution and the slaughtering of Americans, a million Americans. That's Midwestern values. That's it. This is what we want to this is what we want to celebrate. I mean it's it's silly. When Minnesota's population was 172,000, it sent 22,000 troops to join the Union army. Almost 80% of the Union's army's wheat, corn, and oats came from Midwest soil. So what? The South is producing all kinds of stuff, too. So what? I mean, this, that's, a, that's a bad argument. But again, Will can't get away from the Lincolnian myth. He can't get away from the righteous cause myth, which he thinks is Midwest. But he's talking about John Brown, a homicidal maniac, and Harry Beecher Stowe, who was a New Englander. And frankly, a couple of people that, um, or three people that were not, shining examples of American values in the 1860s. So he concludes, as a new year unfolds, a potentially ominous future, Luak suggests remembering the reassuring rhythm and rituals of civic affairs in the Midwest and was seen as, in the words of Minnesotan F. Scott Fitzgerald, the warm center of the world. Remembrance is necessary, Luak writes, lest we lose our bearings in the stream of time. Well, I mean, look, I agree with that. Tradition means a lot. But the tradition that they're actually pining for is not Midwest. It's Southern. You want to find where you can actually have examples of reassurance and tradition, you find them in 
the Jeffersonian tradition and the South, which hung on to them longer than anyone else. That's where you find it. All right. I thought this column was absolutely hilarious and, again, historically ignorant, but I had to cover it. Anytime George Will writes stupid stuff, you have to call him out for it. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.